Good evening. If you have a, a Bible handy, can you turn with me to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, the letter or the epistle to the Philippians? We read from chapter 4, and we will be majoring on that, but we'll be dipping into uh, two or three chapters beforehand uh, as uh, preparation for the main study. But before we do that, let us pray. <clears throat> Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, which has been translated into our own language. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who inspired the word, who moved the writers. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit being present here with us this evening and wherever we are, helping us to understand it and giving us the renewal of the will and the mind and the heart with a desire to put into practice, to be obedient to all that you command and to avoid all that you forbid that our whole lives may be lived to the glory of Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, this is one of the, what's known as the prison epistles or prison letters written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail because of the testimony of Jesus, written to a church in the city or town of Philippi in what was Macedonia, part of Greece, and it's a church that is very dear to the apostle's heart. And when I'm talking about a church, I'm talking about people and not a building. Um, he had visited it on a number of occasions, and it would appear from what we could read in Acts chapter 16 that it was at Philippi that the apostle Paul, a Jew, first preached the good news of Christ in Europe. And it is a church dear to the Apostle's heart. As the chapter 4 was being read to us, especially in the second half of it, we couldn't fail but being, be impressed by the sheer extravagance of language that Paul uses to express his love and affection for these dear people who, like him, love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. Now, if we were to study the letter to the church in Philippi, we would learn a number of things. We would see that our salvation is a gracious gift to us from God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a treasure that God has freely given away to us. And we should see that as a gift, it is not to be treated like a delicate ornament, untouched, viewed only, or even worse still, hidden away. Rather, we should look at it perhaps as an instrument to be used <coughs> and used fully to be worked out in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we as the Lord's redeemed people are urged to have a certain mindset, a mindset that is patterned on the mindset and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, a mindset of humility and service dedicated to the glory of God, even when that is deemed to be costly. 
And this follows with the exhortation in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, to these Christians and to us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And notice the instruction is to work out, not work for your own salvation. As believers, we already have this salvation. It's a gift to us from God. So we are to put it to work and not to store it away as some sort of souvenir eh, or family heirloom in a drawer or cupboard. And we are to do so, we are to work it out with fear and trembling. These are perhaps words that we might not use today, but there's nothing mysterious or scary about this. I really believe that at heart this means to take this work out seriously, to put effort and energy into it, not as a punishment exercise, the sort of mindset that it'll do you good if it kills you attitude. No, that's not what's meant here. We're to experience it as a joy and a delight to be doing (coughs) the clearly revealed Lord's will for all believers. To go about it with earnestness, consciously trusting and depending on the Lord who provides us with both the motivation and the means, with the energy and the enthusiasm to do so. But before we examine chapter 4 in greater detail, let us look at the context as set in the preceding chapter. That's in chapter 3. And I believe there are two great principles held forth before us here. Through the gospel, and that's the key, through the gospel, in verses 7 to 9, we learn that Christ is our righteousness. The only alternative to that is self-righteousness, by the way. Through the gospel, and this can only come to us through the gospel, Christ is our righteousness. When we trust Jesus as our Savior, we stand before God covered in the righteousness of Christ. Christ shields us from God's holy anger and just judgment, and that's how we stand now before God in the present. And the second principle through the gospel that we come to know through the gospel is to be found in verses 20 and 21, that Christ is returning. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the next most momentous event in God's calendar and we are getting closer to it by the day. We're reminded of this, are we not, at each communion service when the words, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, till he returns. I can remember a minister I had uh, when I, in my formative years. He used to say that he loved the Lord's Supper And one aspect of the Lord's Supper he really loved was, that's one less time to do this before the Lord Jesus comes back. That's what awaits us in the future, and in both Christ is our righteousness and Christ is return. God protects us and saves us and keeps us close to himself through his great love for us in Christ. Now, what I would like to do 
is to apply these two foundational principles, these two fundamental facts, these two twin biblical truths of the gospel in verses 1 to 7 to a commitment within the congregation, verses 8 and 9 to a contemplation within our minds, and verses 10 to 20, contentment in all circumstances. Some people like alliteration, others don't. There they are. I don't always use alliteration. It's a a bit like Marmite, isn't it? Well, anyway, uh, first of all, commitment within the congregation, verses 1 to 7. Look at verse 1. All in the congregation are to be rooted together in Christ, committed to a person, Jesus. Verses 2 to 3, all are to be reconciled in Christ, committed to a people, each other. Verse 4, all are to be rejoicing in Christ, committed to a praise, rejoicing in the Lord. And our reason for gentleness, verse 5, Christ is at hand. And the remedy for any anxiety that we may have in the church by prayer and supplication. Verse 6, and the result of rejoicing, verse 7, the peace of God in our hearts. Now, let's apply these twin principles here. Christ is our righteousness, and Christ is returning to this section, commitment within the congregation. And for the sake of time, we'll take only one example in the section, and to me it's glaringly obvious, the case of Euodia and Syntyche, or whatever the pronunciation is, what was the cause of their fallout, shall we call it that? Well, we don't really know, but let's note that in this instance, Paul does not appear to take sides. This makes me think that it was not an issue for church discipline that caused this fallout, a major disagreement between them, but it could, however, develop into a church disciplinary matter if these two ladies don't work at putting the matter right. So think of what they have. For both these women, Christ is their righteousness. Both of them have been accepted by God on the basis of Christ and his sacrifice. Therefore, since God has accepted them and included them both in his fellowship and favor in Christ, they must now work at it. Work it out regarding being reconciled and restored to each other. Not by going back over old records and settling old accounts. Oh, you did this to me. Yes, but you said that to me. No. We are told absolutely clearly in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. And in the Greek, it means literally, love does not take an inventory. And this is true of our God, who, through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25, said, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So wonderfully liberating that is. Or Jeremiah 31 verse 4, quoted in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Since 
That is what God does for us, remembering our sins no more. How dare these two ladies, or anybody else for that matter, keep a record? In chapter 2, verse 14, we are counseled to do, quote, do all things without grumbling or questioning or complaining. How dare we, therefore, practice resentment towards each other for wrongs done? So what's the answer? How should they or we behave in such circumstances? Well, let's apply the two foundational principles in chapter 3. Firstly, Christ is our righteousness. Think about them. Their sins are covered. Not only covered the cost, but covered over by God. The Augustus top lady has a hymn, and the words go, The wrath of a sin-hating God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior, so obedience and blood, hides all my transgressions from view. Their sins are covered, therefore they should think along those lines and accept each other, be reconciled to each other, and the church or some people in the church, the elders perhaps, should help them be reconciled. That's applying the first principle, Christ is our righteousness. But let's now apply the second principle, Christ is returning. As the Apostle James puts it, stop grumbling against each other. The judge is at the door, James 5 verse 9. In other words, get right with each other before he walks through. Let's now turn to the second section, verses 8 and 9, contemplation within our minds. Here we have the key to apprehending and comprehending all that Paul is writing about in his letter to the Philippians. Think on these things, he says. (coughs) Think on Christ. And this points us back to what we read in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that we are to have the same mindset as Jesus did or does, not just in his actions, but also in his very being. So let's look at this. Let's take them in turn. Whatever is true, well, let's begin here. Christ is the truth. There's an awful lot being said and claimed about truth. Your truth and somebody else's truth and Orpah's truth and all this, and they can all be conflicting with each other. And there's no truth. Yes, we have it. Christ is the truth. Whatever is noble, Christ is the highest ranking king, king of kings and lord of lords. Think on him. Whatever is right and just, Christ is the judge of all the earth. Whatever is pure, Christ is the sinless son of God, the lamb of God without spot or blemish. Whatever is lovely, (coughs) Christ is the altogether lovely one, of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 16. There is nothing about Christ that is unlovely or unlovable. Whatever is admirable or commendable, Christ is God's Son in whom the Father is well pleased. Whatever is excellent, Christ is totally outstanding in the perfection of the quality of his being and behavior. Whatever is praiseworthy, 
Christ, we're told in the Scriptures, has the preeminence in all things. Paul's gospel, as well as Paul's behavior, is all centered on Christ's person and work. Paul's instruction in verse 9 is very bold and consistent. He has no time for the advice of compromised preachers, don't do as I do, do as I tell you. Such thoughts are as far from the mind of the Apostle Paul as heaven is from hell. The things which the Philippians learned and received and heard from Paul's lips included the gospel of the goodness and love of God in Christ, in whom he freely grants to us upon repentance and faith new life, forgiveness of sins, and eternal happiness. It means a full endorsement of the Word of God as our supreme rule of faith and life, our source of authority. It gives us clear instructions regarding living as children of light in a crooked and perverse generation and culture. And then he adds, as you have seen in me, put it into practice. Now, I think this is the wow factor here. Wow. Who among us, if writing a letter to a church, would dare to be so bold? What was the secret of Paul's consistency of life and teaching? Well, I think we've got to say that he always commended Christ. Nothing less will do, and nothing else is worthy. As an ambassador of the King of Kings, Paul's message and Paul's method, Paul's preaching and Paul's practice always brought glory and honor to his heavenly head of state. Chapter 3, verse 20, Paul tells us he is a citizen of heaven, and so he spoke and acted accordingly. A British ambassador in a foreign country has a specific job to do. He is to represent his queen and her interests. He is to convey the queen's message. He is to live in such a manner as will commend the queen and country at all times. But if the ambassador were to be a rebel or alter the queen's message or to live disgracefully, then he's a traitor. It's as stark as that. With Paul... All who profess to love Christ are to make him and his gospel their preoccupation in life and always commend him and his kingdom, even in the midst of rebels and enemies. So let's now apply the two foundational principles and see how this works out in practice. Firstly, Christ is our righteousness. May the mind of Christ be in you. So, what do we feed our minds on? Christ and his standard of righteousness or something inferior? Let's apply this, uh, say, to our entertainment. And I, I'm not anti-entertainment. But let's apply this to our entertainment. The TV programs we watch the magazine articles and books we're in. Are we really careful to evaluate them and, if necessary, avoid them on the basis of Christ's standard of truth, nobility, justice, and purity? 
Christ is our righteousness, remember. Then the second principle, Christ is returning. Would the return of Christ give us cause for rejoicing or for embarrassment if he came into the room and saw the TV program we happened to be watching at the time? Now let's move on to the next section, verses 10 to 20. Contentment in all circumstances. Paul, I believe, takes the ambassadorial analogy further into the practical details of life. It's easy to be a Christian when things go well, but what if things go badly? In adverse circumstances, in extreme disappointment, let's read verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What is the cause of Paul's confidence and what is the secret of Paul's contentment? The answer is in verse 19. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, or as the ESV puts it, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. And with these words, Paul opposes the prevailing philosophy and practice of worldly contentment with the practice and philosophy of Christ-centered contentment. Let's look at the practice in verse 18. I have received full payment and even more. I am, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And the assurance in verse 19 and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And here's the basic difference between Christian, Christ-like contentment and worldly contentment. Worldly contentment is sought through gain. If I only get this, if I only obtain that, if I will only win the next thing, then I'll be content. I can remember some years ago when I was working, uh, and I'm content to be retired, by the way. Uh, some years ago when I was working, there was a colleague who was chronically miserable. His facial expression, his attitude to others, his attitude to his work, all belied his underlying misery. One day when some of the guys were talking about hoping to win a fortune on the lottery, uh, this man in particular said, if I won a few millions, then I'd be happy. Well, he certainly wasn't happy prior to the hope for winnings. And as he still hasn't had a win, I assume he remains somewhere on the misery spectrum. Such an appetite for gain is insatiable it's delusive because contentment is not to be found through getting. For Paul, contentment is realized through giving. He gave his life in the service of Jesus and found in verse 11 
I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. <clears throat> and as such, he followed the example of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And of course, this is a crucifixion prophecy. In the giving of himself to death, the cruel, accursed death of the cross of Calvary, in the giving of his blood as the sacrifice for sinners, we read, he was satisfied. He saw his offspring, not through some process of physical procreation, but by redemption and renewal, all his ransomed people. In the shedding of his precious blood at Calvary, Jesus ransomed and redeemed a multitude so large that no human being can number them. In the doing of this, in the giving of this, Christ was contented. Now let's go back into Philippians chapter 4. Let's apply these two basic principles to contentment. Firstly, Christ is our righteousness. By way of the cross, giving up, he became our righteousness. Likewise, by following the instructions of Jesus, we read in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Christ is our righteousness. We have everything in Jesus. And what of the second principle? Christ is returning. Well, we see in the next two verses, in a sense, reward. Christ the judge is returning. He is coming as the rewarder of those who at great cost to himself have been consent contented to suffer loss for his glory's sake. No wonder the Apostle Paul could conclude his letter in verse 23 on the high note of God's grace to us. We'll read from verse 21. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And this ending of the letter to the Philippian church is not the apostolic equivalent of love and kisses, which we may sometimes finish off letters to certain people, not the tax collector or anybody else, but usually uh, to someone very near and dear to us. This is not the equivalent of uh, love and kisses. It's something far greater and far more profound than that. Rather, it is a full and confident affirmation of the saving, keeping, 
preserving and glorifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends his letter as it began and majored on in chapter 3, all for Jesus. And as Christians, our salvation is from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, all through the undeserved, unmerited favor of God towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all the glory on earth and in heaven. Amen. And may God bless to us the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, this part of your inspired word. And how, as we've been reading it and studying it, we've only been scratching the surface. There is so much more, so much more treasure to be dug out, mined there in the truth. But such as we have this evening, we thank you for it, pointing us clearly to Jesus, our Savior, in whom and through whom you have invested everything for our eternal salvation. And we ask this and thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.